0: In November 2012, a search and rescue team made a grisly discovery along the southern edge of the Superstition Mountains. On Tortilla Mountain, they spotted a boot sticking off of a ledge that was very nearly imperceptible. Further investigation showed it to be a skeleton that was wedged into the cliff face some 35 feet off the ground. The remains were soon identified as 35-year-old Jesse Capon, a night bellman at the Sheraton Hotel in Denver, who had gone missing back in 2009. Though the official search had been called off, members of the search and rescue team continued to go out every weekend for nearly three years in hopes of finding Capon's remains. The body was found roughly a half mile from Capon's camp, where his tent and jeep had been found shortly after the search began. It was a sad end for Capen who had become obsessed with a singular goal. He had saved up a month's worth of vacation time at the hotel so he could spend long stretches in the rugged Arizona wilderness. He even traded in his car for a jeep with four-wheel drive to better be able to handle the rough conditions. And though he barely mentioned it to family and friends, after his disappearance, they discovered more than 100 books and maps in his apartment, all related to his quest. They also found out that he had apparently been to the Superstitions twice in the previous decade without letting anybody know. And Capon's obsession is not unique. He was not the first and will certainly not be the last person lured to the rugged mountain range east of Phoenix. And he was not the first and will certainly not be the last person to meet a tragic end after they get there. Because... The siren song of a fabulously wealthy gold mine, lost well over a century, continues to lure the curious and obsessed into those forbidding desert mountains to this very day. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ The History of Arizona. Episode 142, The Lost Dutchman Mine. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed the end to the endlessly fascinating saga of James Addison Rivas last week. But now that he has left the stage, we can turn our attention to another legend that was already started by the time Rivas was sent to prison. I, of course, am referring to the namesake of today's episode, the mythical Lost Dutchman mine. And I will confess that this is one of those subjects that I knew I would cover from the moment that I started the first outline for this podcast. It's been a long three years, but I finally get to dive through the fascinating history of Jacob Waltz and try to untangle fact from fiction when it comes to this supposed mine of there in the mountains. And I do want to stop and recognize longtime friend of the show, Ben M., who helped me get my hands on some of the source materials that I'm using for this episode. Also, I need to give a shout out to listener Jared R., who sent me a photo of Jacob Waltz's grave that I'm using as the cover art for this episode up on the podcast website, azhistorypodcast.com. Thanks, guys. This episode would not have happened without you. But before we can dive into Waltz and his story, I think first, as I am wont to do, I will set the scene a little bit. And that necessitates talking about the Superstition Mountains. The Superstitions, located roughly 35 miles east of Phoenix, are the result of intense volcanic activity that erupted some 25 million years ago. Several ancient calderas have been identified, which at one point spewed out 2,500 cubic miles, yes I said cubic miles, of ash and lava. Upthrust and erosion in these calderas created the incredibly rugged landscape we all know and love today. The mountains are primarily comprised of welded tuff, or volcanic ash cemented under extreme heat, and also breccia, granite, dacite, basalt, and some conglomerate, which I suppose means something if you're a geologist. Now comes the part of the podcast where I apologize to any Amerindian listeners out there as I stumble my way through both their language and cultural history. This time my apologies go out to the various Odom groups and not the Apache, so at least that's a bit of a change of pace. The Akamel Odom called the mountains, if I'm anywhere close to pronouncing this right, Tak Tamai, or Crooked Top Mountain, and it was created by the great butterfly Cherwit Make, or Earthmaker, who was the father of all men and animals. The Odom even have their own version of a flood story, where Cherwit Make saw that man had become selfish and warned them through the sage named Suha to be honest and live in peace. He also warned them that if they didn't do this, they would be destroyed by a flood. When these people rejected Suha's words... Suha and his wife were told to go up into the superstitions and build a hollow ball out of spruce gum. You all know how the next part goes. The heavens poured, the waters rose, and for many days Suha and his wife floated in their ball until it settled on the mountains. This is one version that I've read. Another is that all the good people were gathered into Kakatok Tame and were saved, while chirwit Make turned all the evil people into stone. And these are the ominous-looking pillars that you see all around you as you hike the Peralta Trail to Fremont Saddle. Once again, apologies to any Odom listeners out there if I botched that, and I would be more than happy to hear the actual story from a native listener, if there is such a person out there. However, the Odom didn't live in Kakatok Tame. Starting in the 10th century AD, the Salado people a branch of the ancestral Puebloans, moved into the area and you can still see some of their cliff dwellings throughout the region. This is also the same group who carved the petroglyphs that you can see on various hikes around the mountains to this day. Now, the Salado people would be gone by the time the Spanish arrived, and these would call the mountains La Sierra de la Espume, or Foam Mountains, for reasons I can't seem to track down. The mountain range received its current name when early American settlers in the 1860s noticed that the local Amerindian tribes had a lot of stories and superstitions about this particular range, and so they named the Craggy Peaks the Superstition Mountains. Okay, that was a necessary thumbnail sketch of this geographic feature that, by the way, is an absolute blast to hike. But now it's time to discuss what you all came here for lost dutchman mine and for that we need our dutchman so let's bring one jacob waltz to the stage now as i am contractually obligated to say at this point jacob waltz was not dutch instead he was born in oh boy Oberschwandorf, schwandorf a town in Württemberg, germany in 1810 Americans not being known as the best with foreign words and names, took the German name for German, Deutsch, and warped it into a word they did know, Dutch. This is the same reason we called the descendants of a group of German immigrants back east, the Pennsylvania Dutch. Though really the words Dutch and Deutsch both derive from a Proto-Germanic word that means of the people, so it's all really just semantics. Okay, etymological digression over. Waltz's life is not the best documented, but we can follow the broad strokes. I will note that I'm leaning almost entirely on the narrative of James Swanson and Tom Cullenborn for this retelling, as Swanson wrote down what Cullenborn knew, and Cullenborn knew everything before his death in 2018 at the age of 80, this author, historian, Apache Junction native and font of local knowledge was perhaps the expert on the Superstition Mountains and the legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine. I'm actually very sorry that I never had the chance to meet with him. Colin Bourne tells us that there's very little known about Waltz's early life, especially his education. Some claim that he graduated from a German university as a mining engineer. But it's also likely that his youth was spent as an apprentice to his father, who was a tailor. He would leave Europe in 1839, arriving in Baltimore, Maryland. A couple years later, he may have gone to New Jersey to work for a cousin who ran a tannery. However, Waltz didn't find tanning all that enjoyable, partially because it sounds like it's a little mundane, and partially because he had a new obsession, mining for gold. He would travel around the East Coast, to North Carolina and Georgia, in an attempt to cash in on some placer gold fields, but always seemed to arrive just a tad too late and the gold fields were mostly played out. But by now it's the late 1840s, and what do we know about gold seeking in the late 1840s? That's right, the Dutchman decided that California was the place he ought to be, so he packed up and moved out west probably by offering his services to a wagon train since, as Swanson and Colin point out, it was probably the fastest and easiest way to get there. Now, the next dozen or so years of Waltz's life aren't fairly documented, so we can only speculate about him moving around and trying, trying, and trying some more to strike it rich. In 1860, he's listed as a day laborer in Azusa Township in Los Angeles County, probably working for a miner named Reuben Blackley up in San Gabriel Canyon in a spot with the delightful name of El Doradoville. The following year, he was in Los Angeles, where he became a naturalized American citizen. This was something he actually attempted to do back in 1847 in Mississippi, but it appears his wandering ways led him to put citizenship on the back burner until 1861. Sometime in 1862 or 1863, He left California and went to the city of La Paz in Arizona, where other miners had found placer gold, in which we talked about in episode 44. He may have traveled back to California, but by late 1863, he was down in the Prescott area, where he would file for several claims over the next three years, though he never seemed to have struck it rich. He moved on from Prescott in 1866 and wandered around to various locations, though there is no documentation exactly which locations, when he finally turned up in the newly created city of Phoenix in 1868. Here he befriended another German immigrant named Andrew Starar, and he became involved in the new community's irrigation efforts. In fact, one of the new canals would be known as Dutch Ditch because of the involvement of the Germans, and Americans' weird habit of not pronouncing Deutsch right. And Swanson and Cullenborn also say that you can still see the remnants of this ditch just north of I-10 near Durango Street between 7th and 12th Streets in Phoenix. And I don't know personally if that's still true or not, but I really hope it is. This same basic location is where Waltz would set up his 160-acre homestead, and where he made a small attempt at farming... Before the wander and gold lust got too much for him. For the legend of the Lost Dutchman mine, the next 19 years, from 1872 to 1891, are the most crucial. Because for those nearly two decades, Waltz would saddle up a burrow and go out hunting for treasure in all the mountains near the Salt River Valley. If he did have a mine, Cullenborn argues that Waltz found it probably between 1872 and 1878. And we'll get into the if part of that sentence in just a bit. There are many accounts of him selling small quantities of gold in Florence between 1873 and 1878, before an illness forced Waltz to return to Phoenix to recuperate. And at that time, he apparently had prospected east of the aptly named Goldfield Mountains, which are just west of the Superstitions, south of the Salt River, and north of Apache Junction. For you folks who know the area, these are the mountains that are on your left as you take State Route 88, driving out toward Canyon Lake. After two years of convalescing, Waltz hit the trail again in 1880, and soon was selling more small quantities of gold in Florence. And this is when rumors began to circulate about this old Dutchman who would ride out into the wilderness and return with gold. Waltz was rather tight-lipped about his mineral wealth, and here is when folks actually began trying to tail him in an effort to ascertain the location of his claim. He must have been a spry one, however, because he always managed to shake off any followers and then show up in Phoenix saying that he had visited his quote-unquote mine. Soon the rumors had a name— calling it Jake's or Jacob's Lost Mine, the Dutchman's Lost Mine, or as we know it today, the Lost Dutchman Mine. A woman in Mesa, who was a little girl at the time, recalled when Waltz came into her family store in 1884. She described him saying, quote, "...the skin of his face was parched dry from the desert sun and as hard as leather." His beard was almost snow-white and somewhat stained by tobacco below his chin. His hands were coarse and calloused, revealing many decades of hard work. He no longer stood erect, for his age was now showing. His clothes were dusty and torn, but were neatly in place. The only reason I noticed him was he looked like my aging father. No one at first paid him any attention until he went to pay for his supplies. In his wrinkled hand was a small cowhide poke. He loosened the strings and poured onto the counter yellow gold in a matrix of white quartz. After gathering his supplies, he left as quietly as he came. End quote. There were other witnesses to this that were interviewed in coming years, but while they all remembered the wizened man paying in gold, they couldn't agree as to where he went afterward. Just a few said that he definitely headed east towards the superstitions. It's hard to get a bearing on how rich Waltz was or how much gold he may have had. The 1875 tax rolls showed that the Dutchman paid taxes for $250 worth of personal property, which did not include his 160 acre homestead. However, $250 of personal property was a considerable amount for the time. Not rich, but definitely not destitute. And that's not to mention what his property must have been worth. Like I said a few minutes ago, Waltz grew quite ill in 1878 and spent two years recovering in Phoenix. And during this time, he entered into an agreement with his old friend and fellow German immigrant, Andrew Starar, where he promised to turn over his land to his friend, along with $50, in return for Staror taking care of him for the rest of Waltz's natural life. However, in coming years, Star Wars would not pay the required taxes on the property and actually ended up losing it, and so Waltz was out of a home. He would wind up moving into an adobe shack behind the residence of a woman named Julia Thomas, who we will have a lot more to say about in just a second. For years, the old Dutchman continued to clamber off into parts unknown with his burrow, only to return with some gold, usually said to be contained within quartz. He would also be very evasive when questioned directly about the source of his gold, but he would talk a lot in Phoenix saloons, giving tantalizing, though ultimately non-conclusive clues about his mine's location. This continued up to 1891, the year of something we spent half of episode 134 talking about, the Great Flood along the Salt River. Waltz apparently climbed into a tree to avoid the rising floodwaters, but was stuck there for several days before being rescued. And the cold and damp conditions, plus his advanced age, were not a good mix, and he developed pneumonia. This might seem a minor thing, but there are several accounts of who exactly was able to get Waltz down out of that tree. Where this becomes important is that some of the leading contenders for this charitable act are also those who in coming years would claim that they received insider knowledge directly from the Dutchman as to the location of his mine. One such contender is a young German immigrant in his 20s named Reinhard Petrasch, who worked in a local bakery and listened intently to Waltz's stories of gold. Another possibility is a man named R.J. Dick Holmes, whose son claimed had helped Waltz out of that tree and the two became fairly close. Either way, Waltz was taken to Thomas's home to convalesce both from his ordeal and the pneumonia that had set in. And during this time, he reportedly paid Thomas in gold for the care he was receiving, and possibly passed along more cryptic hints about his mind to both her and Patrash, who was captivated by his tales. The Dutchman's health remained precarious as the months dragged on, but in October 1891, his pneumonia came back in force, and he once again took to a sickbed. Here things get really muddled depending on whose version of events you are relying on. But the best I can tell, both Thomas and Patrash were watching over the steadily declining old man on the evening of October 24th. Waltz apparently relayed more specific information to them about the mine's location that night. Around 5 a.m. the next morning, Waltz told Thomas that he was having difficulty breathing. She left the house to find a doctor, running into Holmes and another man, whom she enlisted to watch over Waltz while she kept trying to find help. Meanwhile, Patrash would make his way over to the house and was told by Holmes and the other man that Waltz was too ill to speak. I don't have a record of when Thomas showed up with the doctor, but whenever it was, it was probably too late. Jacob Waltz died on October 25th, 1891, at the age of 81. And with that, the one man who knew the truth about the Lost Dutchman mine was gone. He would be buried the next day in Lot 19, Grave 4, at what used to be the old Maricopa County Cemetery but today is known as the Pioneer and Military Memorial Park. In the aftermath of his death, a giant game of who said what to whom began to play out. Holmes and his friend left Thomas' house on October 25th with a large quantity of gold, something that Thomas would later accuse them of stealing. Holmes would argue that Waltz had gifted him the gold on his deathbed. And nearly immediately, Holmes would start searching for the mine, but it's unclear when he had been given any instructions on where it might be. It's possible that Waltz had said something during the time that Holmes and his compatriot were watching over the old man, and that the line they told petrash that Waltz was too ill to speak was just an attempt to keep anybody else from finding out the secret. But it's also possible that it's true the Dutchman couldn't speak, and that he had only revealed clues to Thomas and petrash the night beforehand. Whichever one you want to believe, and hey, I'll admit that maybe both those versions are wrong, certain quote-unquote clues about the mine's location began to trickle out into the public consciousness. One of these is that the shadow of Weaver's Needle, a prominent column of rock that is named for our old friend Pauline Weaver, indicates where the gold can be found. Another is that it's near Bluff Springs Mountain. And just for good measure, there is a pretty famous clue that has Waltz stating, quote, from the tunnel of my mine, I can see the military trail below, but from the military trail, you cannot see the entrance to my mine, end quote. We are going to dive much more into the search for the Dutchman's mine next week, but for now, I want to examine the question of where exactly Waltz may have gotten his gold from. It's not actually a foregone conclusion that he had a mine at all, as that could have been just a fable Waltz concocted to explain where his wealth was from. Colin Born breaks down the four main alternative theories that are much in vogue when talking about Waltz's gold. The first deals with the idea of the mythical Peralta family and their fabulous gold mine. And I know we just dealt with a fake Peralta family surrounding Rivas's land scheme, But unfortunately, here's another one for you. In this telling, the Apache had a gold mine in the superstitions that was taken over and worked by a wealthy Mexican man named Miguel Peralta, a favorite name of mythical people it seems, before the Apache slaughtered him and others. How this ties into the legend of the Lost Dutchman is that Waltz and a partner named Jacob Weiser came across two Mexicans working this mine- Waltz and Weiser supposedly killed these two and took over the fabulously wealthy mine. I'm not giving much credence to this because most experts tend to agree that the Peralta family is an invention of later writers, with the name being picked because a Pedro de Peralta had been the governor of New Mexico way back when. Also, just for good measure, Cullenborn points out that there is no record of this Jacob Weiser who supposedly helped in this claim-jumping and double homicide. Alright, so let's scratch out that theory and move to the next. In this version, Waltz didn't find gold so much as he was stealing it. The old Dutchman is said to have high-graded the ore, which is just a fancy term for pocketing some of the loot from a mine you were hired to work instead of turning it in. So the trips into the mountains may have been actually him recovering his ill-gotten booty without tipping off people where he actually got it. A lot of times in this version, the source of Waltz's gold is claimed to be the wealthy vulture mine near Wickenburg. However, it's never been conclusively proven that Waltz ever worked the vulture mine, and it's only possible that he passed through Wickenburg like once, and so he never had the chance to steal some ore from that cash cow of a mine. So, why I find it at least a little compelling, I'm not sure we can rely on this version of this theory either. Though I do find it interesting that in his 1916 History of Arizona, early state historian James H. McClintock recounts that there are a couple of lost Dutchman mine stories floating around, and one actually involves the Dutchman in question living in Wickenburg. He would supposedly sneak away from the camp late at night and would return with gold, but of a different kind than could be found in the nearby Vulture Mine. Another early state historian recounts roughly the same thing, which either means there is some credence to this theory, or that there was a lot of misinformation floating around out there some two decades after Waltz's death. And I suppose it is possible that Waltz's story got mixed up with another story coming out of Wickenburg. The third theory that's been passed around is that Waltz hadn't found any sort of mine or mining operation. This argument is that the gold he was peddling was too high of quality to have been mined naturally, so it must have already been processed by the time he found it. So Waltz somehow stumbled upon a cache of hidden gold, maybe from the unlucky and unhistorical Peralta family, and that the whole mine story was to cover up the treasure he'd found. This fanciful theory often ties back to some of our earliest episodes, because in a lot of tellings, it's not a Mexican treasure he finds, but one belonging to the Jesuits. If you can remember three years back to episode 9, we talked about how the Jesuit order had been evicted from all Spanish lands in 1769 for reasons that are not very well documented, but probably boiled down to them being too influential and powerful. So, the stories go, the Jesuits took all their money, which they had failed to pay the royal fifth on, don't you know, and stored it in a secret spot in the superstitions for safekeeping. The idea of a lost Jesuit treasure deep in the mountains actually developed some legs, and as we'll talk about when we get into the treasure seekers, it's something that people believed and were ready to take enormous chances to get. The real issue with this theory is there is no evidence, no document trail, no really good reason to believe such a treasure actually ever existed. For me, though, the clincher is that it buys into the myth that Spaniards once just roamed all of Arizona. But as we saw, they and their Mexican successors never really went north of Tucson because that meant running into the Apache, which more or less meant certain death. It's Possible a group of priests took a 50-mile multi-day trek into the harsh desert swarming with hostile Apache to bury treasure they could not come back to claim, but it's not that probable. The fourth theory, and the one that I kind of like, is that there is no lost Dutchman mine because Waltz simply stumbled upon where another gold mine would later be claimed and documented. The only gold mining district in the Superstitions that we know of is the area east of the Goldfield Mountains and on the western side of the Superstitions themselves, which is where Waltz appeared to have been working. This would have led Waltz over the same area where the rich Black Queen, Bulldog, and Goldfield claims would be staked in coming years. And here's the thing. According to Colinborn, Waltz often said that he had found a rich vein of gold-bearing quartz that was 18 inches wide, and the bulldog claim also happened to have a rich vein of gold-bearing quartz that was, wait for it, 18 inches wide. The main debate now between treasure hunters and miners is whether the gold-bearing quartz Waltz had was white or pink quartz, as the bulldog claim only has the white variety. But of course, you'll remember that the girl in Mesa said his gold was in a matrix of white quartz. Out of all the theories we talked about, this one is my favorite because, unlike many of the others, it's so darn plausible. It's a lot less cool than there being a secret cave full of gold somewhere up in the mountains waiting for one lucky schlub to find it. But if Walt actually found a place that someone later would unknowingly rechristen then it would explain why more than a century's worth of searching the superstitions for his mine has yielded no results. While we're talking about theories, I just want to throw out here, don't get me started on the so-called Peralta Stones because I am very doubtful about their authenticity and any ties to the lost Dutchman mine. And really, at the end of the day, all we have is theories. The only person who knew for sure was Jacob Waltz, and he took that secret with him to the grave. As Swanson and Cullenborn write in their book, quote, If success can be measured by what a man leaves for posterity, Jacob Waltz was one of the most successful men in history. End quote. Before I sign off, I just want to give you notice that there will be no new episode next week, June 18th, as I'll be entertaining guests from out of state for a family funeral that's happening. But join me in two weeks as we trail the legacy that Waltz left for posterity and follow the legions of zealous, sometimes greedy and hostile, but always colorful figures who took to the inhospitable superstitions over the next century searching in vain for the Dutchman's gold. Some would sink their lives into this treasure hunt, while others would lose them altogether. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.